Welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today, we're going to be getting a logistic leader, logistics leader's perspective on innovation, digital transformation, diversity, and more. I'm excited to welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast, Trina Nielsen, who is the head of Ocean, Europe and Middle East at Flexport. Trina, welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. I'm happy to have you. Okay, so we're going to talk about a lot of things today, but before we get into it all, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your role, anything you want to share about you. All right, thank you. So my name is Trina, as you mentioned. I'm 38. I am Danish. Apologize for the accent uh, to everyone. Um, I have 18 years of experience in the logistics industry. I have lived in four different countries uh, during those 18 years. And I have primarily spent my time in commercial roles, um, actually ranging all the way from uh, back office in Mumbai, India, and to uh, being customer facing um, and dealing with clients directly. Um, before joining Flexport, uh, one of my most recent roles was in Twill, uh, which was uh, a corporate innovation uh, in Maersk. Uh, so Maersk is a big carrier in the logistics industry. Um, and uh, I think if I, you know, I've had quite a few jobs, that's sort of how you work in Maersk. Um, but if I had to talk about some personal characteristics, sorry, <laughs> um, then I focus a lot on customer outcomes. Mm -hmm. I am very passionate about leadership and I care a lot about the impact that I make when I go, uh, go to work. Um, so now I've joined Flexport, which is uh, super exciting. It is uh, a tech company in the logistics industry. The purpose is to make global trade easy for everyone, which is something that personally I'm very excited about. Um, and on a personal note, I have my boyfriend Casper, and we have little Vigo, uh, who is 20 months old. So also a recently new mom. Yes. So a lot going on, which is exciting. Um, yes. Okay. So uh, Trina and I had the opportunity to um, meet and have lunch uh, in Copenhagen um, not too long ago, which was awesome because a lot of times I have folks on the podcast that I don't actually get the chance to meet in person. Um, and, you know, it's your energy for innovation and creating new uh offerings to help customers achieve their outcomes is, you know, what I found um, really interesting about you. So um, I'm excited to talk about that all a little bit more. So I um, came across uh, Trina, um, her LinkedIn profile, um, because you were doing some content with Frank Matz. Um, Frank Matz, who has been on the podcast before, spoke at our Frankfurt uh, live tour event last year, um, and he wrote uh, the Lean Scale Up. So um, if you all haven't listened to that podcast, um, I'll put it in the show notes. It's definitely worth a listen. Um, but his content is a lot related to scaling innovation. So figuring out for organizations, you know, how they come up with these new ideas, um, but, you know, don't keep them in a bubble or let them sort of fizzle out, but rather, you know, integrate them into the broader business. Um, and that's something you have experience with, which we'll talk a bit about later. But when I came across your profile, I loved um, the opening line uh, of your bio on LinkedIn. You said, I go to work to make a difference every day for customers, the company, and for people around me. So, what I wanted to ask you about that is, um, how do you know when you are accomplishing that mission? That is a good question. So um, coming from a, a digital transformation background, one thing I've learned to appreciate a lot is data. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there's, there's two aspects to how I look at that. There's the data-driven aspects, and then there's the more personal, empathetic sort of feeling uh, around it. 
Um, so when looking at data, I think uh, in my past roles, what I focused a lot on is NPS. So really how happy are customers with the service that we're delivering? Um, and I've actually in the past spent a lot of time understanding in more detail exactly what is the customer feedback. Um, I've been fortunate uh, also to work with uh, employee engagement tools. Uh, so I have experience with Gallup and Office Vibes, so the old school and the new school, um, which I find, so especially Office Vibe is something that I've used very actively uh, with my teams. Uh, and also, if you work in a global environment, you can keep track of the engagement constantly. You can go to, down to uh, quite detailed levels. So uh, that I have used a lot as a leader to make sure that the teams that I'm um, dealing with uh, are feeling engaged. And then, of course, you know, from a company perspective, uh, I know at the end of the day, a lot is about profit. Uh, profit. Uh, I think also the impact on society is something that is being measured a lot more. Um, but I know at the end of the day, working for a company, you need to deliver the profit. So to me, sort of the perfect triangle of, of creating that positive impact is to deliver uh, very exceptionally uh, on all of those three aspects. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, the more sort of personal, to me, feedback is a gift. Uh, I'm used to getting a lot of uh, feedback uh, from people around me and I actively ask for it. Um, and then seeing, especially growth in people, um, seeing customers uh, being able to deliver better results because we have helped them out. Um, I think, you know, it's the more softer aspects that is not as analytically driven, but where I feel that there's a lot of uh, things to measure as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's those wins that like resonate emotionally that like keep you energized about that mission, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So if you look back at your sort of career trajectory, um, a lot of your roles have in common that there's a vision to grow and transform and you've played various roles in helping bring that vision to life in a meaningful way. Um, what that makes me think a little bit about is how sometimes we get a little bit stuck or lost in the differences between vision and strategy. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what each of those means to you and why they're both important? Yeah. Um, to me, the vision is sort of the greater purpose. Uh, it is how it's how you look at the future and the impact that you want to deliver in the future. Um, if we look at the, the vision that we had in Twill, it was about leveling the playing fields in global logistics. Uh, we found that a lot of small companies were always being down prioritized. Um, you know, in terms of space, especially during Corona, by the way, you know, there was not enough space. And typically it's the big corporations who uh, who then have the power to get the space. And I think um, I've always rooted for the underdog. And I think to really breed innovation, a lot of it will come from small entrepreneurs. So we had this vision of leveling the playing field, especially, you know, for someone who just has one container. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that vision sets the direction and sort of gives the connection and, and feeling of purpose uh, when you go to work. And our strategy was much more related to how do we then enable that vision? So one of the big game changers in, uh, in logistics, I think, was the entrance of uh, technology. So I completely understand why small companies have not been prioritized in the past because moving a container from A to B is a commoditized business. The thing is, when technology comes into play, it actually changes uh, the environment and you can build very effective solutions that can make dealing with the small guys uh, you know, much more profitable than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. But in the past, you know, with the profit margins, when there's pressure on everything, you you optimize uh, for scale, you drive economies of scale. So I think for me, the strategy was uh, the strategy was all about technology and how to solve the problems through technology. But the vision was 
you know, something that was closer to my heart in terms of, mm-hmm. okay, let's make this equal for all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when I think about our audience, right. So uh, leadership level, um, mostly in service and across a variety of industries, you know, when I think about people that are maybe similar to you in their like desire to innovate and see innovation come to life and, you know, wanting to look for ways to do new things, to be creative, to, um, you know, have that vision, not just for like incremental improvement, but for real, you know, change and growth. It makes me think about, you know, the vision is so important to make sure there's alignment on, right? Because sometimes I've talked to individual leaders who their vision for where the company could go or where the service offerings could go or where the technology landscape could go, whatever it is, and the the company's vision, they're not aligned. And then it makes, you know, someone like you who is energized by seeing this stuff come to life, just get very frustrated because, you know, it's, if you are someone who's innovation, innovation minded, working for an organization who is not, then you're going to feel very stuck, you know? Um, so I think that vision is, yes, that mission, but making sure that there's alignment on that vision throughout the organization, you know, that you as an individual feel like you're in a place that has a vision that's fits what you want to do in your um, career, you know, is is really important. Um, the other thing I was going to say is uh, what you were saying about um, Twill and, and leveling the playing field, it made me think of a conversation that I had on the podcast with a gentleman named Alec Anderson, who... Um, uh, is the managing director for an organization called Cool Mill, okay, with a K. And um, they're uh, a very innovative um, company that manufactures rice mills, okay? So I learned so much about like rice milling that I didn't know before. <laughs> um, but it, it's really cool because their, their machines are innovative in and of their own right. Um, but they're using an as a service business model, which is disruptive in that industry because it's typically been incredibly expensive CapEx equipment that to your point, a lot of smaller rice mills could not afford or could not afford to update, could not afford to maintain, et cetera. So from a competitive standpoint, they were at an extreme disadvantage, oftentimes like not even able to really sustain, you know, because it was almost like the industry was um, just targeting the very top level of these producers, right? And um, so we had a really interesting conversation about how technology and shifting business models can sort of democratize innovation because what yeah. they've been able to do is not only introduce, you know, innovative equipment, but do so using a business model that makes it attainable um, to everyone from the largest to the very smallest mills. And it's really interesting when you think about you know, how that does level the playing field and sort of change the game when it comes to making innovation accessible to everyone. Um, so yeah. it's really cool parallel in what, you, what you're talking about. Yeah, um, and I think one of the things that I was extremely proud of when there was the total logistics chaos uh, during the COVID pandemic, um, we managed to protect companies who would have never, I mean, companies would have gone bankrupt mm-hmm. because they didn't have any goods to sell. And we managed to protect them in the most highly pressed, you know, uh, capacity mm-hmm. situation ever in the industry. And innovation can be a lot of things. Um, to me, it's also sometimes about changing mindsets about the uh, business models and and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I feel proud that, you know, at least we were able to really make a massive difference for a number of companies 
and technology was a part of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, maybe we, you know, helped a few innovative companies actually survive. Um, and I hope their business is thriving still today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. And I mean, you talk about your mission, right? I mean, that's goes back to, you know, making a real difference. Um, yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about digital trans transformation has been a through line in, um, you know, different roles you've had. If we think specifically about Twill, you know, bringing that concept from that vision to reality. Um, so we we talk a lot about digital transformation and the way it enables a lot of change. Um, and I just want to talk through some of the aspects that are you know, important um, to consider and get your perspective. Uh, so the first you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, which is always focusing on customer outcomes. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think there's many ways that you can look at a business model. Um, and I've now seen many cases from many different companies. But I think um, in an industry that has historically been extremely product driven, it has become commoditized. It is so easy to focus on productivity, economies of scale uh, and so forth. I think my learning in the digital uh, transformation area is that if you focus on how to actually solve customer problems um, and trying to do that in a different way, uh, so by focusing all of your efforts on delivering positive outcomes to customers, a lot of the other topics will actually follow. Customers will be willing to pay a little bit more because the value is there. But so if you take a process, you can focus on making that product uh, process extremely effective. But if you focus on delivering high quality outcomes to the customer, the effectiveness will often come along. Mm -hmm. So I think what we were very successful in was to sometimes in the short term accept that we were not perfect on effectiveness, but over time we would be much more effective because we were so dedicated to delivering a specific outcome to the customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, you know, when, when we talk about um, the potential of outcomes-based service, like I often say when it's done right, it's very mutually beneficial, right? So to your point, you know, if you are leading with that in mind, a lot of what you're trying to kind of accomplish um, internally or efficiency wise, et cetera, can come um, because you're, you know, you're focusing on what your customers value. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier, you're a huge fan of data. Um, so uh, how does that factor in when it comes to digital transformation? I'm thinking either, you know, from the perspective of making sure you are achieving what you've set out to achieve in your transformation, but also leveraging data from um, the standpoint of customer value proposition. So I love customers and customers tell you a lot of different things and they all say they need something different and they need something very specific. Um, what I love about data is the fact that it is an unbiased, unfiltered way of, for example, understanding how your customers behave, mm -hmm. uh, which can then help you understand what they truly need uh, you also need to listen to them, of course, but the data can help you detect the deeper problem because you can analyze their actions mm -hmm. um, and understand it through that, at least if you're working in a platform type of business. Um, I also think data takes a lot of the bias out of the conversation. I think, to be honest, you know, during my 18 years, I've made a lot of decisions uh, based on gut feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, in the past, where data was not as easily ac uh, accessible, that was sort of what leadership was all about, right? It's like you have a lot of experience, you use that to make the right decisions. But I think as data has come in, it's been such a gift because it has helped me remove some of my biases, helped me uh, forget some of the things I've learned along the way because, you know, things change over time. Um, and it's just given me a lot 
better customer insights, but also fostered, in my opinion, uh, better decisions and more innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that might be a little bit uh, fluffy, but I think a perfect example is instead of you know asking 10 salespeople which customers should we prioritize, uh, instead you can look into all the data, you can really try and assess, okay, which of these customers uh, has the best potential, has the best impact to your business, fits best to to your, if we talk about service model, right, fits best, best into your network. Um, you can just make a better and more informed decision that will also deliver the better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the point you made is interesting too about um, all good points. The other thing I'm thinking about in terms of, like you said, customers all it's not that they're not unique or that they don't need different things, but they're all going to think they're more unique than they are and need something different than they do. Right. And so I think a lot of times we see companies struggling with how much to kind of customize offerings or solutions. Right. And I think there's, you know, a really interesting conversation to be had around the, this idea of, you know, cuss, the the conversation you have externally and the conversation you have internally can be very different, right? Like, yeah. be, because of the data, like you have the ability if you are leveraging data well to create systems internally that are pretty standard, but make yeah. the the outcome to the customer feel quite customized. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, it, you know, um, so I think that's that's really interesting as well. But I love the point about, um, you know, relying on data to remove some of your uh, bias. Um, so and let's that, be honest, scalability is absolutely critical. Uh, I mean, so in a so we were targeting small and medium sized companies. So if we started, you know, customizing um Every customer needs to feel that they get their needs met, mm-hmm. but it has to be in a scalable version because otherwise your cost to serve will simply be too high to make it profitable. So the scalability point to me is, I agree so much, it's critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. So what when you think about digital transformation, um, can you talk about the role of leadership and the need to sort of create uh, creative, challenging, and trusting environments. Yeah. So I think leadership is going through a sort of a transformation these days. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity, uh, but also as technology is becoming uh, more and more something that uh, we're dealing with, I think depending on how long you've been a leader, at least when I started having my first leadership position, uh, we were at the macro level. Excel was like the the most used tool. Um, And suddenly, you know, it's technology that is complex. I mean, even if I tried, I would never be a technology expert. Um, But the way of working when you deal with technology and digital transformations, um, it just requires at least in my opinion, a different leadership mentality, because you have to, I think in the past, I felt like everyone expected me to have all the answers, where today as a leader, you need to accept that there'll be people around you who are smarter, who Mm -hmm. are, you know, maybe more well-educated than you. In some cases, even some who are better paid than you, because, that is what's required to get the best talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think facilitating the diverse community where you combine the, you know, the people who are experts in the technology space with people who are experts in the business space, because at the end of the day, digital transformation is all about taking something that we know and have done you know, for many years and then doing it in a digital way, right? So trying to combine those two worlds, I think, requires a much more humble approach mm-hmm. where you facilitate people rather than give all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think my experience has been that actually, if you don't have a strong vision and the strategy is not clear, it will be extremely difficult to be a successful leader mm-hmm. um, because those two things is what will drive the team in the right direction. And you need to accept that the team has to come up with the answers. Mm-hmm. So you need to trust that they understand where you're going. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a it is a humbling experience as a leader, feeling that you are so dependent on your team, but I also think it's extremely healthy. Um, and I think it just fosters so much more creativity when you, instead of having one brain to rule them all, um, you have, uh, you know, maybe eight brains who collectively try try and solve problems. Mm-hmm. So I think digital transformation is the perfect example of how diversity of thought um, can uh, can truly come into play. And it's probably where we see it um coming to life the most at the moment uh, compared to more traditional uh, business models mm-hmm. yeah so on the diver on the diversity note um you know i think based on what we chatted about when we had lunch you know in both of our worlds logistics and service there's a lot more room for diversity okay um <laughs> yeah. so when you think about that, um, what are your thoughts on how we, you know, bring that diversity of thought into these industries that are, you know, typically very homogenous? So <clears throat> I have this feeling that, so there's still some legacy, which we need to accept, right? We're not going to change the world tomorrow. Also because as a female, and I believe you feel the same way, but I would never accept getting a job simply because I'm female. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want the job because I'm the best candidate. Uh, that is part of my pride and, and DNA. Um, but historically, I think, you know, it's a very human thing. We hire or have hired people who, uh, who look like ourselves. Um, so I think there's, there's something that we need to solve in terms of making sure that you know, that we actually, because I have seen teams that are extremely diverse, delivering so much better results and outcomes compared to teams that are not. There's something about the way that we go about hiring. There's something about the way we go about um, looking at capabilities. Uh, We need to take the sort of personal traits and way of working a bit more out of the conversation. And I don't think I have all the... um, you know, answers for how we do it. But I like there's some companies, you know, if you have a group of people who are part of a hiring panel, um, that can help take some of the unconscious bias out of the process. Um, There's also in some companies where they always have to have a female as part of the, you know, final two, three candidates. Um, And as I said, I believe that you should always hire the best person for the role. Um, but I think there needs to be a process where leaders are assisted to hire more complementary skills, mm-hmm. um, but but having that support in place. And then I think, you know, we need to give it a little bit of time. Um, I'm seeing in the logistics industry, things are changing. Mm-hmm. They're changing slowly, yeah. but I'm also seeing, I mean, Maersk is a massive company. Uh, there's almost 100,000 people now. And uh, I'm not there anymore, but so this is probably six months old knowledge. But at that time, the talent base at the levels, you know, every five years or something like that, the talent base of females, if we just talk gender, continues to expand at the different levels. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the focus on nurturing, appreciating different ways of thinking and working um, and helping leaders actually facilitate that in the best way, I think is good. And then yeah. we also need to evaluate our leaders on different parameters, potentially, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely agree on that. I think um, part of the legacy that exists is, you know, um, different layers of 
sometimes very unintentionally toxic leadership. Um, you know, uh, I think that's just reality. You know, you have a lot of times there's these, you know, glaring toxicity gets dealt with because it has to, you know, from whether it's Mm. a legal standpoint or a PR standpoint, et cetera. But there's these different layers of bias, um, you know, just very outdated thinking or beliefs that it's a lot harder to pinpoint where that is in businesses and how it's affecting diversity, but also teams, you know, when you have, um, you know, just that kind of permeates, you know what I mean? So it's, yeah, yeah, I do, I do definitely agree that we need to be really digging into, you know, this idea, as you stated, like the, the role of leaders has changed from needing to know it all to needing to enable a lot more. And as part of that change, you know, what's required is different and we need to make make sure that we're measuring based on today's needs um the other thing that's interesting you know because you you mentioned that you rely a lot on data like data um and so it's an interesting catch-22 with this idea of i think to some degree, you know, company is saying, well, we need to have, you know, this type of candidate be one of the final, you know, few or what have you, those type of parameters, they get put in place, you know, sometimes it's, I think people are like, well, if you don't measure it, it won't change. So like from that perspective, I appreciate the fact that people want to at least pay attention. The problem is it's like, they're acknowledging it, but they're not understanding it, right? Like it's, um, and I think a lot of it comes down to what is the why behind the any any given organization focusing on diversity. If it's because you feel like you have to, yeah, the outcome is a lot different than feeling like you know you will be better, do better, have greater success because you value that diversity of thought. So it's not about mm. checking a box of, you know, we need X percent women, we need X percent, you know, this category, this category, this category. It's we need more diversity because it will help us achieve our goals and grow and and be different. Um, yeah. So, and I think to be fair, it's also, I mean, I have had the pleasure of leading an extremely diverse team and I have seen the outcomes and the results of that, which were in my opinion, exceptional. And I don't take credit for that. I give full credit to the team. I was just a facilitator. Um, but I think if you've never experienced that, how, how can you value it? Right? So I think there's, I agree, it's a catch-22 because we need to somehow force the initial phase and that mm-hmm. can be done in, in different ways. But I also have this feeling that when, if everyone just tries being part of a trusting diverse team, they will feel so quickly why it adds so much value. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in a, in a big corporate where you've done things the same way for many years, you also don't you don't know what you're losing out on. Mm-hmm. So it's not a burning platform. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's also, you know, what will hold a few people back, right? Because yeah, yeah. yeah we need to get it done, but if my business is running fine. So not really the biggest priority. Right. And you have, again, it goes back to, you know, these individual leaders who, quite frankly, I mean, managing a diverse team, if they've, one, not seeing the value, but two, they're probably complacent in managing a lot of people that are, you know, different iterations of themselves, which is, you know, easier than learning how to evolve as a leader and embrace new ways of working, be more humble, etc. So that's where, you know, I think, it's a really good point that I think going back to your point about like, you don't want to get a role just because you're a woman and they're trying to check a box. This is where I think the measurement can't just be on, 
you know, what are the final hires and or even who's in the final interviews, it needs to be on how wide of a net can we cast to get more diverse applicants? Because then if you can bring Mm. them in, you have more selection to work through the process. But to your point, it needs to be not only that, it needs to be on leadership because leadership ultimately will have an immense impact on not just your ability to bring in diversity of thought, but retain it. Because if you have leaders that don't value that in the ranks and these people are reporting to them, they're not going to want to stick around, you know? Um, So, And it can be extremely uncomfortable. I'll be super Mm -hmm. honest. I mean, having someone in your team tell you off because, you know, the data says something and Mm -hmm. you have thought something else your entire life, that is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Having to coach someone who, you know, is a PhD and you're like a shipping professional, (laughs) it, it is it is extremely difficult and challenging, but I also think it is one of the most fun and most developing, you know, develop or one of the most interesting development areas as a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. Un- uncomfortable for sure. <laughs> I think you sort of said this earlier, but you know, at um, we just recently had our uh, future field service event in Sydney, and one of the topics that came up in a conversation we were sort of having around company culture, leadership, etc., was this idea of reverse mentoring. And it's sort of that's kind of the crux of it is to evolve as a leader, you have to understand that you have just as much to learn from the people you're working with as they do from you, right? It's not this idea of a hierarchy so much as it is, you know, creating that team approach. So when we think about diversity, um, you know, I know this is getting into a subset here, um, but it's a subset you and I both uh, fall into and bonded over a bit, which is being um, working moms uh, and balancing motherhood and careers. So you mentioned Vigo is 20 months um, and you, uh, you know, here you are. Um, So you're, you're still, uh, you're, you're still, here you're still passionate about what you do you're still driven to contribute and um create and innovate um but i think you know what we talked about is the reality that oftentimes the companies who want that type of drive and talent have environments that make those roles incredibly difficult for anyone who is raising children to realistically take, right? So I guess I'm interested in, you know, what do you find most challenging? What to you makes it worthwhile uh, to to undertake the balancing act? Um, And what do we sort of wish that employers could take from the conversation to, you know, consider uh, in terms of having folks like us on the team. Having incredible working moms. <laughs> um, <laughs> who have sick kids often and need to say all the time, who get yeah. sick themselves and, yeah. you know, sometimes don't sleep at night. Yeah. Um, so the challenging part, and I think we actually touched upon this when we met in Copenhagen, right? We as women, I mean, men have worked as fathers for many, many years and had great careers and uh, and so forth. Uh, so it is doable. I think as a woman, um, we are different, uh, which is also part of the diversity, right? So we maybe have a slightly I mean, one of my core priorities is to be an incredible mom. I feel like I brought this little person to the world and and I feel like it's my primary job to make sure that I try my best to create a great human being uh, who hopefully one day can make a great impact in the world, which actually, you know, at the end of the day is uh, when we talk about having a a purpose-driven or vision sort of uh, for something that is a great purpose. But I think the challenge is that we as women are met with 
a lot of legacy, you know, this is how females should be. Um, I've met that before having kids as well, to be honest. Um, and I think that's also changing, but it is difficult to have people look at you like you're not good enough because you're working X number of hours uh, or because you have a career job. Uh, you mentioned this, Sarah, right? You get asked, oh, how is it to be away from your kids when you're traveling? Um, but probably most men will never be answered or asked that question. And it makes you feel like you are wrong. Right. Um, so I think to me that is really challenging because none of us want to be bad parents. I don't think men want to be bad parents as well. Mm -hmm. And so being met with that constantly is, is quite a pressure. Uh, so all of you out there, you know, keep that in mind when you meet some of the working moms. Um, I think making it worthwhile is everything. So I actually feel that I'm a better person. I'm a better leader. Uh, I feel like I am much more productive. I get so much shit done, uh, stuff done um, in half the time because I have to, and because I want to prioritize being uh, with my family. Um, and having a kid now, you know, the first part is not so fun, but now it's actually uh, really fun. And I think it gives nice perspective. Um, when it comes to what companies can do, I think, honestly, there's so much potential, right? There's uh, fundamentally, uh, I think flexibility for everyone is such a gift. And I think the COVID pandemic uh, has also, you know, if we want to look at the bright side, and that is one of the things that came with it. So I'm at home today. I work at home much more than I did before, which saves me transport. Mm -hmm. And it gives me focus time before I was sitting in an open office. But it also means that I can do a bit of laundry. So when the kiddo comes home, I'm there. You know, there's not 10 other things that I need to do. So the flexibility for me is absolutely critical. I also think something really simple as changing you know, maternity and paternity rules uh, and payment during maternity and paternity is extremely important because in small companies, I think a lot of females or working moms are out of the sort of running mm -hmm. because there is, you know, what if, what if they go on maternity leave? Uh, okay, Europe is different, right? In Denmark, a woman can be out for up to 12 months. So, having someone who could potentially be out for 12 months can be a very large expense. So I think there's a lot of structural things that we as society can do to make it more equal, also for the sake of the men. Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't the men get paid on paternity leave? Yeah. Yeah. Well, also you, you mentioned flexibility for all, and that's a really good point. I mean, first of all, it wouldn't be fair to only offer flexibility to women because they may be moms, but more importantly, you know, you and I have talked about the fact that we both have very supportive male spouses. So yes. um, them having flexibility helps because, you know, it creates a better balance in the home ecosystem to say, you know, the pressure isn't on me to have the flexibility to be able to run to school or to do this or whatever. It's shared. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Um, there, IFS did a, a video, like a panel discussion with, um, some folks for International Women's Day and our, um, chief customer officer, Mark Moffat was interviewed. And I loved one of the points he made, which was around your point of like, I get comments that a lot of men in my role wouldn't get about being away from my kids, who's taking care of your kids, et cetera. And he said like, before you ask someone a question or make a statement to someone, could you reverse that? And could you say it to the another gender or, you know, like if you wouldn't say it to everyone, just don't say it because there's a lot of, you know, and, and I don't think it's ill intent. It's, no. you know, it's, it's just people aren't aware of, you know, to your point, like then as a mom, you walk away and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, questioning all of my life's choices, you know, yeah. but at the end of the day, I think you and I both love what we do. And so, you know, 
we are moms and we love our children, but part of what makes us who we are as human beings is being passionate about the work we do and doing that work. So, you know, it's a balance that to us is worthwhile. And I think there's a lot of benefit to employers to, you know, be creative about how to support, um, you know, not only women and working moms, but all their employees to have a good balance and to, you know, um, offer more flexibility, more, you know, um, resources, more support, you know, to everyone can benefit from, you know, being able to better integrate their work in their lives. I don't like the idea of balance. I think it's more of a blend, you know, if you yeah. can be in an environment where, you know, you're at work and something happens with your son and and you're not scared to say, I'm really sorry, but I need to go, you know, be with him and we'll have to pick this up tomorrow. You know, yeah. if you, and then they know you will. Right. So yeah. they get the benefit of having your your intelligence and your talent. You don't have that constant stress of what if, what if, what if it's just OK. You know, today uh, is a great day to put 90 percent of my energy into work. And tomorrow it might have to be five percent because the little one's sick and I have to, you know, stay home with him or what have you. So, yeah, yeah it's um, it's an interesting thing to sort out. Um, Okay, I realize we are over time. Uh, do we have time for one last question? Yes. Okay. Let's do it. All right. So the last thing I just want to do is go back to the role you had at Twill. Okay. So when I found you through Frank, um, his post had said that you know you created this offering um, and experienced. 400 times growth in three years. Okay. So um, I'm yeah. not sure if that's accurate. Sounds like it is. Um, so, you know, extreme success in taking this idea from vision, putting the strategy in place, executing on the innovation, and, and more importantly, scaling it. So if you look back on that journey, um, you know, particularly if you look back on that journey, thinking about listeners that might be fighting some legacy, you know, what is the biggest lesson you learned or words of wisdom that you would share with folks um, from that experience? <clears throat> so I think, listen, a corporate innovation can be challenging because the legacy can hold you back but I also think the legacy can be what really fuels you to move with speed. So um, looking back at everything, uh, I mean, by the way, it was a massive team effort uh, and a lot of people involved to, uh, to make it a, a success and across the world. Um, but I think one of the things, so the first couple of years, we did not have much traction. Um, we were not sharp enough on who our target customer was. We did not have enough focus because of that. So we were developing left, right, and center, and we were not sharp enough on what is scalable, what is not, what is truly needed to win in one particular place. So strategically, we made a shift where we said, okay, now we're focusing on this segment of the market, and we're going to do everything we can to win it. And I think that was sort of a game changer because also when we did that, it was much easier to say, okay, on these five points, we will use the legacy way of working because it will not add any significant value to the customer that we try and, and rebuild this from mm -hmm. scratch. So that means speed uh, and reduction of complexity. Um, and then we said, okay, these five points is what will truly differentiate and what we feel will make us win with this segment. So this is where we have to really challenge the existing legacy, think different and build something completely different. Um, and I think because it was in a corporate context, trying to find that balance between how do we not disturb the corporate uh, animal too much by being too creative. So these things we will do your way. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes. Um, and then, you know, 
trying to see how do we get the corporate to also change their way of working through being uh, very insightful on customers, using all the data that we have. So never speaking of, oh, but we need this because it's nice, but saying we need this because we can see from the customers, they're acting like this, so we have to change this process. Um, I think one of the big challenges that we had was how do you get priority when your business model is all about delivering something in the future, so delivering for potential, where in a big corporate, everything is about delivering right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was something that was a constant battle and that slowed us down more than we would have liked to. You can say we grew significantly. You know, it was a combination of a lot of hard work um, a little bit of luck. So the COVID pandemic, you know, not having, you know, customers not having space anywhere, it meant customers came to us so we could pick and choose, which is actually really nice and very fortunate. Um, but they also only came to us because we had been out sort of trying to find them before. So they actually knew who we were. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, hard work, a bit of luck, um, and a different way of thinking is what enabled us uh, to do that in three years. Uh, it was crazy. We made so many mistakes. Uh, we had so much fun. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think we all had that purpose of, uh, you know, allowing the one container person to uh, be as successful as uh, the big corporations. Um, and I think that was a really, that was a really game changer. Yeah. I love that. And I think there's, you know, um, plenty of, of points in there about, you know, to your point, um, driving progress with specifics, you know, um, focusing in so that you're not trying to um, be all things to all people, at least in the beginning, you know, you mm. get that initial success that you can look to scale. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned that it was slower than you like the first bit you didn't make that much progress so i think it's a lot of persistence um and yeah. tenacity you know um so especially being in sales you and and the team to you know seeing it uh all the way through thank you yes all right trina i've taken so much of your time i really appreciate you coming and sharing with us um thank you for being here today Thanks for having me. Yes. You can find more by visiting us at futureoffieldservice.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the bi-weekly Future of Field Service Insider so you can stay up to date on the content. Also take a look at the remaining uh, locations for the Future of Field Service live tour events and register for the one closest to you. The Future of Field Service podcast is published in partnership with IFS. You can learn more at ifs.com. As always, thank you for listening.